Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at ICFF.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there. I'm bewildered by the amount of choices. Not the amount of choices, but the lack of basis. Simple basis to generate a form. Sixty-one-year-old Norman Jaffe is best known on the East End for designing exclusive homes. But his family says they are most proud of his religious works, including this just-completed East Hampton synagogue. Now his family pray police are wrong. Police believe Jaffe went for an early morning swim at this Bridgehampton beach last week and drowned. The keys to Jaffe's car were found in it, and his clothes were found on the beach. But no body has been found. That was the voice of quintessential Hamptons-based mid-century modern architect Norman Jaffe. On the morning of August 19, 1993, he took a short drive to the beach in Bridgehampton, New York, stripped down, neatly folded his clothes, and dove into the Atlantic Ocean for a swim. He never returned, and his body was never recovered. The 61-year-old Jaffe's disappearance left many unanswered questions about his legacy, his influence, and what actually happened on that late summer morning, 27 years ago. 
Hey everyone, I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever Confidential, Episode 1, The Strange Disappearance of Norman Jaffe. I learned about this story from my friend Andrew Wagner, a journalist who, while researching for a book, became deeply fascinated with all the intrigue and mystery of Mr. Jaffe's life and disappearance. We both agreed this would make a great episode, and so we're embarking on this experiment to dig into the lesser-told stories of the darker side of design, the shadowy, sometimes sordid tales hiding under a glossy topcoat of respectable legacy. So if you like what you hear, let us know. We're considering turning Clever Confidential into its own series, and there are a lot more stories like this that we want to explore. But first, let me introduce you to my co-host today. Andrew Wagner is my friend, collaborator, and partner in crime. He was one of the original founding editors of Dwell Magazine, the editor-in-chief of American Craft and ReadyMade, and has just finished a book on our first subject, Norman Jaffe. So I'll let him introduce our main character. I was first introduced to Norman Jaffe and his work while I was at Dwell. He had this just very mystical quality about him that I was really drawn to. Now, Jaffe first came to prominence in the 60s, and his work is really quintessentially mid-century modern. Low-slung houses featuring lots of wood and stone that seemed to grow out of the earth rather than dominate it. And there was always something really very Californian to me about his work and Jaffe himself that I loved and that I really related to. You might even call him a proto-hippie, though he never sort of took on the personal stylings of classic 60s or 70s hippies with long hair, patchouli oil, drugs. But really, his whole life was built around this sort of what I like to refer to as a favorite hippie pastime, which is self-discovery. Clearly, that mystique was an important part of his success, and it really drew clients to him, clients that really respected that part of him, the, the artistic side of him. They encouraged it, they wanted it, they needed it, and were willing to put up with all his idiosyncrasies that came with those talents. Jaffe really just had this outsider energy that drove him his whole life. And for me, that's one of the things that I loved. I loved that he was this guy steeped in West Coast mysticism and back-to-nature energy, but then he planted himself firmly in the East Coast establishment. He had all the hippie trappings, but to look at him, you'd never know it. From a personal stylistic perspective, at least in the beginning of his career, he was much more Don Draper than Jerry Garcia. He really was a contrarian, an incredibly charming and talented contrarian. So if you look at his life trajectory, I guess none of this should come as a surprise. He was always a bit of a gypsy, a vagabond, and a chameleon. So he was born in Chicago on April 3rd, uh, 1932, to Polish and Latvian parents. His father was Harold, and Harold came from Latvia, and his mother was Mary, and she came from Poland. Really, there were problems when he was growing up. His mother was bipolar, and his father was what Jaffe called a jack-of-all-trades, and worse than that, he called him a drifter. And, you know, this is a tough time to grow up, too. You know, the country's coming out of the uh, Great Depression. They're immigrants, um, which has got to be tough. They're struggling a little bit in Chicago. And in 1941, when Norman was nine, his family moves to Seattle to join relatives, where one of his father's brothers lived. So Norman really falls in love with Seattle when he gets there. The Germanic landscape and the rhythmic waves of the Pacific, it it just really captured his soul. And so he he really was in love with this place. Was he sort of 
cast off to Seattle? No, they all go together. But after the war, 1947, Joffe's parents decide to move back to Chicago. But Norman convinces them to let him stay in Seattle and finish high school. And he actually lived in a rooming house, and he would walk to school every day at West Seattle High School. And it's around this time that he starts to consider architecture as a career. He has a great quote, which, again, I think really captures who this guy is and who he would become. But he says, I knew the architect was a kind of guy who didn't have to get up early which I thought was great. So, you know, we're getting a little bit of a look into into what type of guy this is. He doesn't want to get up late. He doesn't want to have to go to the office every day necessarily. Um, he's looking for something different. But in 1950, he graduates high school, and he actually ends up moving back to Illinois to live with his parents. And he enrolls at the architecture program at the University of Illinois in Urbana. So in 1953, he enrolls in the army because the family's in financial turmoil. Joffe doesn't have any money. Um, he wants to figure out how to study, but he doesn't have the funds. So he enrolls in the army and he's shipped off to Korea. Almost immediately upon his arrival in Seoul, um, the Korean War ends and he's moved to Japan by the Army Corps of Engineers. And in Japan, he is instructed to travel the country drawing and photographing everything. So just obviously, yeah, the most perfect, awesome job, (laughs) not only for Joffe, but for anyone. That just sounds amazing. In the spring of 1956, he's released from the military and he returns to the States and he ends up taking a drafting job in the Chicago office of Skidmore, Owings and Merrill. But, you know, I think there was something about him again, like that wasn't Chicago, even though he's from there, it influenced him greatly. I think he was always sort of yearning. to to get away. Maybe he just wasn't that much of a Midwest guy. So he's always trying to break away from there. And in fact, he ends up being able to do that because he enrolls in the College of Environmental Design at the University of California, Berkeley. And he ends up studying with William Worcester and Joseph Estrick. So Joseph Estrick at the time was the foremost proponent of Bay Area modernism. The Northern California modernism at the time is really about the place. It's about Northern California. And I think Jaffe is really turned on by that. He's really turned on by this idea of the place and the context having such an effect on the work. He then also landed a job at Eschrick's office where the very first beginnings of the Sea Ranch run were underway. Now, the Sea Ranch, if you don't know it, it's way up north um, in California. It was this big plot of land that Joseph Estrick's office first decided to sort of build a really a planned community, but it was a really amazing uh, modern planned community. Jaffe gets to experience sort of what this is all about. The Sea Ranch really took a lot of its influence from the farm buildings that were around there, from the windswept trees of the northern coast, and Jaffe is really excited by that and he would have um, been there for the the conceptual phase for all the right the, the thinking and and right figuring out what's important and why and the materiality of it all right exactly exactly but i think what's really funny about this time in, in joffy's life or what's really interesting and again this speaks to sort of his outsider nature is that maybe he's not really comfortable anywhere He is this soul that can't be contained because as great as the California experience is for him, the time, you know, the the hippie bubblings are starting to come up. 
you know, a lot of experimentation in every way, he's still not comfortable there. Or maybe Jaffe never wants to get too comfortable anywhere. Even though there's probably a great future for him in California, he decides to get out of California. But he doesn't get out of California before he marries his first wife, Barbara Jean Cochran. And he actually marries her in 1957, and they have a son, Miles Jaffe, that was named after Norman's hero, Miles Davis, which is pretty interesting, um, Mm -hmm. in 1958. That's when Miles Jaffe is born. By 1960, the marriage is falling apart. They're pretty young. Jaffe is Jaffe, and they decide to separate. And so Barbara and Miles move back to Chicago, the suburbs near her parents, and Norman accepts a job at Philip Johnson's office in New York City. And he packs his bags, and he sets off to make his future. I think he also always wanted to push himself. So where do you do that? Where's a great place to push yourself? New York City. So he heads to New York City, and he lands in Philip Johnson's office. It's interesting because Philip Johnson's office at the time, it was very high modernism. It's perfect. Like everybody's desk is totally neat. You know, nothing's out of place. People, it's the early 60s, young architects, they're wearing suits and ties to the office, rolling up their white sleeves, etc. But Jaffe is a total eccentric. And he lands there and he was known in the office as being really a total slob, at least as far as that office went. So Jaffe's desk is a mess and there's garbage everywhere, and it's just a, a crazy spot, but amongst all these like very uh, neat desks. But what's interesting is Johnson lets it happen. He's not a slob slob. like he, He's not slovenly. He's kind of an elegant man, though, but he's sort of like an artist slob, right? He's just got yeah, papers yeah. and ideas and all the... Yes, yes. And, okay, the accoutrement of a scattered brain is everywhere. That that's exactly right because he is he's he's kind of very debonair he's dashing and he and he's very good looking you know this is something that really helped him obviously in life he he has these really amazing good looks and Phil Johnson I think was very taken with him as everybody is as Jaffe goes through his life people are drawn to him he has a lot to say and obviously he has a lot of great ideas a lot of creative ideas that he wants to share with people. And so Philip so, yeah. Johnson is sort of more tolerant of his eccentricities than he is of... Of others, of other people working in his office. Or, yeah, Philip Johnson lets him get away with stuff that he doesn't let others get away with. Oh, that's so, going to create uh, some inter-office rivalries. Uh, right. Because Jaffe, even though people are drawn to him, he's, he's also making enemies along the way. His first wife, she ends up dying in a terrible car crash. Oh, dear. So, yeah, it, back in Chicago. So that leaves his first son, Miles, doesn't have a parent in Chicago. But Jaffe decides, he says, well, I, Miles has to come and live with me. Please, let's get him in New York. So Miles goes to New York, and he starts living with his dad. I think Miles is around 11 or 12. and oh, so. tragic. It's around the same time that Norman decides he's going to set off on his own and he wants to work to establish his own practice. But times are really tough. And it's uh, it's interesting because when he does this, if Miles shows up and they actually end up sharing a pullout sofa to sleep on and then they'd fold it back up in the in the day so Norman could get to work. So it's it's kind of a crazy existence. 
You know, it's not the most stable existence. But, you know, Norman is driven and Norman's determined and he wants to make this work. And, of course, his charms and his good looks and his talent finally really start to pay off. So in 1967, at the age of 35, Norman gets really some much-needed publicity. And he lands this two-page spread in Men's Bazaar. And it's really, it's the perfect, like, if you wanted to sum up Norman Jaffe, this spread would do it. It would be the perfect way to say, this is who he is. But he's lounging really seductively in front of this model for a house he's designed in Virginia. And his head is resting coyly on his propped up left hand while his right hand rests playfully on his crotch. And he's wearing this Bill Blast suit and he has a turtleneck sweater on and an ultra wide canvas belt. And in the time of bell bombs and beards, Norman is, he's just fully cutting against the grain. So the caption reads architect Norman Jaffe AIA is a talented young man with an image as concrete, direct, and pleasing as the buildings he designs. So, Whoa, that's this, an architectural centerfold. <laughs> yes, exactly. It is an architectural centerfold if ever there was one. It's at this time that Norman, again, being the restless soul that he is and always looking, he decides he's going to head out to the Hamptons. And he sees opportunity there. He sees that there are projects for him there. Because at this point in the late 60s, the Hamptons is not the Hamptons that we know today, that you know people talk about all the time, that is really overblown. There's McMansions everywhere. It's kind of a ridiculous scene nowadays, but it's still beautiful. But that back then, it's really, really beautiful. It's really the Hamptons of... Lee Krasner and Jackson Pollock. It's really this artistic hotbed. About two and a half, three hours from New York City, Norman is just floored by it. He goes out there, and what he sees is really just a collection of potato farms that are running right into the Atlantic Ocean. So it's extremely bucolic, and it's got these great lush beaches and this artistic lineage. This was where Norman needed to be. At the same time, there's money starting to flood in here. Also sounds like whatever appealed to him about Seattle and Northern California and the Sea Ranch landscape is probably appealing to him here. And Exactly. And I think what it also offers is, you know, this opportunity for him to carve out his own image, his own way of doing things. He's not constrained by the city He's not constrained by offices. I see why it's perfect for him. One of Norman's glaring contradictions, right, is that he is this eccentric, this artist, but at the same time, he's attracted to the finer things in life. And architecture is not a cheap endeavor, right? You know, if Mm -hmm. you're going to make great architecture, it's going to cost some money. And so Norman understands that and he's attracted to it as well. So even though he likes to paint himself as this eccentric artist who doesn't really care about that stuff. He definitely cares about it. In the early days, he's really working for, as you said, his people. He really enjoys being around his clients and he's really having fun and he's got a lot of leeway to do things that he wants to do. But of course, as the seventies go on, they start to bleed into the eighties and 
what has happened on the East Coast in the 80s is we're starting to look at the growth of Wall Street. And so the people who are making their way out to the Hamptons at this point are not really Norman's people. And it's, they're Gordon geckos, you know, aren't they? And there's a lot of Gordon geckos coming out there and they have a lot of money and they still want what Norman offers, but they're also not willing to play Norman's game as much. But the commissions that were pouring in while they were great for business, they were really not great for an artistic soul like Jaffe. And so he really yearned for these projects beyond single family houses for the titans of finance and fashion in Hollywood. He, he was searching for something that would uh, that would satisfy his soul and not just his pocketbook. As he's disillusioned, he's sort of maybe becoming a bit rootless. And while he had successfully carved out his own path in modernism and on the East Coast, he still always felt shunned and sort of left out of the critical acclaim that a lot of East Coast architects were getting. Peter Eisenman, Michael Graves, Charles Guathamy, John Hedgick, and Richard Meyer. They called them the New York Five. And these guys were kind of the big academic architecture stars, and people loved them. And Norman was kind of considered this, oh, yeah, he he knows how to woo fancy clients, and he builds schlock for people with a lot of money. So, uh, oh, that's got to yeah. hurt his, his artist's integrity. Norman really considered himself a serious architect, and he was, you know, but I think he was also sort of feeling the effects of he had spent too much time in the Hamptons. He was associated too much with that, and especially too much with sort of 1980s Hamptons. So he's starting to get yeah, restless, and he ends up really getting into studying transcendental meditation. And he actually travels to northern India, and he gets really into meditation, and he's really excited about it. He feels like it's sort of feeding his soul, I guess. So when he comes back home after his visit to northern India, where he's studying in an ashram, he's really a changed person. And he, he has this new energy and this new idea, new, new ideas that he wants to approach. Now, he was also at this time he had been sued by Alan Alda of MASH, if you remember him. Hawkeye for, sued him? <laughs> yeah, Hawkeye sued Norman Jaffe because he had done a house for him and Alan Alda didn't think that he had lived up to his part of the contract, etc. And so he, he was getting into all sorts of trouble. Now, Jaffe is from a Jewish heritage, but he had never really been a practicing Jew. But with his newfound enlightenment, he now wants to really pursue that part of himself. And so he hears that there's a synagogue being built in East Hampton, and he just goes crazy. And he just pursues getting that project as much as he can. And he finally gets it, but he agrees to waive his feet. He really wants to work on a spiritual space. Right, exactly, exactly. And he's willing to do anything he can. And what's amazing about that is it's really one of his greatest, most inspired works. And it really is an incredibly moving project. It pays off for him to follow his heart, you know, and I guess it always has. This is a career pinnacle for him because it's aligned with his spiritual purpose as well as his professional purpose. And he's riding that wave. And I think, you know, as he gets more confident and he comes into this new part of himself, Again, people are attracted to him and his confidence and his ideas and his talent. 
he actually ends up landing his biggest commission that he's ever landed. It's 325,000 square foot high rise at 565 Fifth Avenue in New York. This is his first Manhattan project. And so he really feels like, okay, now I'm on the same level playing field with the New York Five and all the other architects Mm. in New York. And not just New York, but in Los Angeles, Chicago, in the world. In the summer of 1993, the high rise opens up. And again, it's following on the heels of the Gates of Grove, immense critical acclaim. You know, he feels like he had really made it, not just professionally, but spiritually. He's really sort of done his thing. This is early summer, 1993. And then two months later, he disappears. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. 
The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the Talks main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. So we're left with these questions of what happened to Norman. What did happen to Norman? What's the evidence? What's the yeah. circumstances around his disappearance? In August of 1993, he would always go out for swims. Um, he lived in Bridgehampton at this point. That's where his office was. And he would always go to the beach every morning and he would go swimming. And that was his routine, his sort of communion with nature. And he'd go sw swimming in the ocean. That was what he did. That morning, he went out, he parked his car at one of his clients' houses, and he walked down to the beach, he folded up his clothes, and he jumped into the ocean, and he never came back. His disappearance was discovered by the house cleaner of the client who had found that his car was blocking the driveway. And so she couldn't get out or she couldn't get in. So she went to see what was going on, see if she could find him swimming. He was nowhere to be found. His clothes are sitting there. She sounds the alarm. So this is really interesting because often uh, when people disappear, like really disappear, it's because there's the search starts too late. You know, maybe people don't start looking for the, dis the person who's disappeared for a day or something. So the ocean or the river or what have you has the opportunity to do its damage and take that person somewhere where they'll never be found but they start doing a search for norman within about three hours and it's a it's a big search everybody's there looking for norman and they can't find him and it's the most confusing thing because again everybody believes that norman has he's he's found himself he's finally come into his own 
he both again spiritually and professionally it seems like he's in a great place seems like his marriage is okay but now he's gone about six weeks later uh the the investigator on the case ends up finding a hip bone a human hip bone on a beach that's maybe a few miles away from the place where Norman went swimming. They decide not to do a DNA test on it, but they Mm -hmm. determine that it has to be Norman's hip bone. Who else's would it be? Plus it has some markings on it that they think match up to some surgery Norman had from a ski accident 10 years prior to that. So they determine, they say, well, we figured it out. It was an accidental drowning. And Norman, he washed up on the beach. He must have been eaten by sea life, sharks, whatever. And that's what happened. Case closed. Wait a second. First of all, does that happen in that area frequently enough for that to be a normal explanation? I think the thing that becomes the most confounding is that this hip bone is not found. He's not seen. He's just completely disappeared for six weeks. That is very unique. Often a body, when uh, someone drowns, they're filled with gases and they will surface to the top of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And this and didn't that. happen. It didn't sit right with people. And so, what starts? Yeah, that's, that was going to be my question is like when yeah. you were doing your research, what's the consensus? Like was the public generally satisfied with that explanation or were there no. whispers or some alternatives? Well, So lots of things start to emerge that raise these questions again. And I think a big part of it is that they declined to do a DNA test, even though DNA is pretty well established at this point. They declined to do a DNA test on this hip bone, which is very curious and sort of leads all these questions. Yeah, because a DNA test would just lock it in, would just just seal the deal. It would still leave some questions. It would still leave some questions about whether could this have been suicide? Because a lot of what people talk about is Norman had this fascination with Corbusier, who died by drowning. And Norman would make reference to to that, this very poetic way of just sort of disappearing into the beautiful ocean, the mystical ocean. And so if he was going to kill himself because... His personal and professional life were not as rosy as they might have looked to some people. Maybe this is a perfect way to do it. And maybe I'd be tempted to say it would be a half and half split that either people think that was his hip bone. He drowned. We don't know whether it's an accident or whether it was suicide. But then I would say there's another 50 percent or maybe even more who think that maybe Norman disappeared himself, that he wanted to disappear that this was restless Norman. He's always been restless. He was restless in Chicago. He's restless in Seattle, in Berkeley, in New York. He's he, he, looking for himself constantly, constantly searching. And maybe he had achieved what he wanted to achieve. He had finally gotten critical acclaim. He finally was accepted by these people that he had struggled to be accepted by for years and always felt shunned. And finally, he had reached, as you said, the pinnacle of his career. And now he was done with that. So maybe Norman was over his existence in New York. He was ready for the next chapter of his life, and he wanted to start clean. You know, maybe he engineered his 
disappearance and he snuck off to some other part of the world looking for more spiritual enlightenment or a new professional path. And that is throughout a lot of my interviews, the old timers in the Hamptons, many would sort of look wistfully and say, well, I like to believe that he's in Argentina or he's in Africa. And Norman just snuck away and just is off doing his Norman Joffe thing, but somewhere else. And we may never know. The building contains the space. If you burn the building down so that the building does not remain, the space it contained still exists. The light which defined the building still exists. When one realizes that the real power is the subtle presence of light and space, one's aesthetic preoccupations kind of uh, fall away. One starts getting loyal to light. And once one's loyal to light, one realizes that it's not the object itself, but the object's role in interrupting the light that is significant. So you spent a lot of time there meeting all of the people that are familiar with his legacy and work, and yeah. some of them are were alive and knew him personally. Yeah, absolutely. And if you are ever doing any research into uh, Norman Joffe, you really can't escape Alistair Gordon, who is a writer and is probably the the greatest documentarian of Norman Joffe's life and wrote kind of the quintessential book about Norman Joffe, Romantic Modernist, The Life and Work of Norman Joffe. Romantic Modernist. Yes, and that's a great way. It's a great way to describe Joffe. But Alistair has done a lot of research and he went down the path of trying to find this hip bone and trying to see it and trying to get as close to this mystery as possible and ran into a lot of roadblocks in trying to do so. Do you think he'd be willing to talk to us? Because I feel like I would love to hear some of the sort of vivid details. Yeah, I think we have to talk to Alistair. Let's do it. Let's get him on the phone. My name is Alistair Gordon, and I am a full-time writer, author, and critic. One of the projects I did that was sort of long-term was I'd grown up in the Hamptons in the summers and was starting to kind of end of the heavy postmodern neo-traditional obsession with knocking down little cool beach houses from the 50s and building these, you know, monstrous McMansions. And my little battle that I did with the local real estate forces was just bringing to light that there were a lot of really important houses out there, especially on Eastern Long Island. You know, I mean, there were houses by Philip Johnson, Marcel Breuer, a guy named Andrew Geller, who I sort of helped to rediscover, Norman Jaffe, of course. Peter Blake was a big one. And they were really had been forgotten. And I'd grown up in a tiny beach house. So, you know, they really, I really responded to this kind of work emotionally. But it was also just saying, hey, you know, mid-century modernism, before that became a catchphrase, you know, it was really interesting. And I understood that late corporate modernism was sort of hideous and difficult to handle. 
but these things were really poetic, you know, sm- very small in scale, very much about the environment and the views and much more in keeping with an environment like Eastern Long Island, which is low-lying dunes and wetlands and bays and ocean beaches and stuff. So that's how it started. And Norman Jaffe was one of the architects that I really got interested in. Of course, he was still alive and still very much present. And we became kind of buddies. And we would, you know, he would show me his new projects, like the Gates of the Grove, which was the Jewish center of the Hamptons. And and new houses. And by that point, he was all, this is, you know, end of the 80s into early 90s. He was kind of an amazing guy for spiritual reasons, too, not just as an architect. And so we would get together at the Candy Kitchen, you know, a little lunch place in Bridgehampton, have, you know, have French fries and grilled cheese sandwiches, and talk about spiritual stuff. You know, we were both reading Mircea Eliada on the sacred in space, really arcane ideas about space. And he was obsessed with the history of temples and uh, synagogues. And we had a lot of things in common that we talked about. How would you describe Norman personally? Well, he was, you know, shockingly handsome. I mean, he was sort of, you know, movie star, good looks. He was incredibly charming. Both women and men felt kind of fell in love with him, you know, really had crushes on him. You know, you either loved him or you hated him. And there were some people I I interviewed who were, you know, still long after he died or disappeared, resented him and, you know, felt he was, I don't know, just angry. I never saw that side. To me, he was always charming, but I'm sure he could have been difficult in many ways as well. What kind of difficult? Well, he was eccentric, you know, so the people he who worked for him for a long time, who really loved him, I mean, really were devoted to him. They would say to me things like, oh, you mean difficult, like riding his bicycle in the middle of the night, in the middle of the Montauk Highway, you know, stuff like that. Or driving into New York City with a completely flat tire, you know, in the middle of a rainstorm. Or, you know, he wasn't a practical guy. And a lot of creative people obviously are like that. And usually you think architects are a little more of the real world, but I don't think think Norman was. I think he was very much in the clouds. You know, he would do things like, which I always found fascinating, Unlike most architects, he loved to get his hands dirty and he'd go to a building site and, you know, get up on the roof and, and bang nails with the carpenter and, you know, the, the roofer and the and push rocks around with the landscape guy, you know, doing because he wanted to, things to be right. But he also really believed in the craftsmanship of the worker, you know, who came in. Most subcontractors and contractors kind of hate architect, you know, the architects. And some of the builders I talked to, thought he was just wonderful and loved him and they'd never worked with an architect like him, you know, because he treated them like an equal rather than sort of beneath content. Right. You know, like a lot of architects just hate builders. I talked to a lot of people who would say he was kind of famous for coming into a project after it was almost done and saying, oh, no, no, that's all wrong. Right. Tear down that. We got to start again. And that's what also really upset a lot of builders who were used to, you know, getting a set of plans, working drawings, and just doing them and, and finishing them. He would go to the building site, even when the house was almost finished, take Polaroids from different angles, and then just with a pen or, or pencil, draw over them and change things, you know, change the angle of the wall or the positioning of a room or the height of a ceiling. Most architects, once they submit the plans to the contractor, other than tiny details, right, it's done. Here it is. It's done. But for Norman, it was part of, you know, the, the larger creative process. It didn't end, you know, when you when you finish the drawings. You you know, 
He was very hands-on. I found that really fascinating. He started as an artist. He, you know, he shared a room with Klaus Oldenburg when he was in Chicago. And I think he never really stopped thinking of himself as an artist, you know, as a painter or sculptor, rather than a you know, businessman architect so, so much. It's costly to go in and, and change physical buildings after they've been built. And he was willing to absorb the cost of that? Yes. But it also meant that he was probably financially always on a little bit of unstable territory. Yeah, no, he was. And he didn't care about it. He really didn't care about that. Even when later in his career, when he really was very successful, I think he was happiest in a way when, you know, it was very simple, minimal lifestyle. And he was either living in one of these tiny cottages he designed early on, or even as I said, in when he first started working in the Hamptons, he would drive out from Manhattan and sleep in his car, you know, and then walk on the beach in the morning. And uh, he would drive back and forth to New York, you know, in a rainstorm or whatever, and tape, he had a little cassette tape recorder, and he would sort of babble away into the tape recorder, you know, different thoughts, sometimes very personal, spiritual things, sometimes just aggravation over a certain client or a certain building. He kept those. I don't even know what he was talking about, you know, it was sort of these just philosophical rambles about the sky and the earth, and somehow he's caught in between, and you know, it's very personal. He rambles on and on about if a building is there and somehow the spaces in the architectural work are destroyed by a fire, the building, the light, the shadows are still there. I I never understood what he meant by that, but it was sort of compelling and very poetic. (laughs) He was so different and he was coming so much more out of Joe Escherich and the, you know, the Bay Area uh, modernists of San Francisco and Berkeley very different feeling, very different sense of material. Norman was always about textures and feeling, and that's why I called it romantic modernist. You know, he was a modernist for sure, but he was very romantic in terms of his use of light, in terms of his use of color and material and texture. Do you think he perhaps was misunderstood, or he also wasn't being perceived as credible? Well, in the sense of fitting into the New York Hamptons, you know, power axis, he definitely felt, I don't think he felt so much like a victim, but but I do think he felt like the outsider. I think that was a role he'd always played, you know, since a young man. Part of him wanted to be the superstar, you know, the famous handsome architect who, you know, is building skyscrapers in Manhattan and these sort of incredible, luxurious, you know, summer homes in the Hamptons. But another part of him was happy, as I said, sleeping in his car. And I think he liked the aesthetic side of life, you know, the the less is more. And I think he was always in conflict with that. And near the end, I think he preferred those early houses that he'd done for people like Chico Hamilton, you know, the jazz musician and and friends of his who were maybe in advertising or in, you know, they were like Harold Becker, who's a great film director, who'd been, they'd been very close friends. And I was going to say, it sounds like those earlier commissions were more of a creative collaboration or kindred spirit kind of works, whereas these larger, more high-profile, more expensive ones were a little bit more status. It was totally status. You know, architects are, are sometimes seen as clinicians, you know, or scientists or something. And he was he was a warm, cozy, intense guy. And I think he could be intense, you know, in a dark way, but also in a very light way. And I think... 
again, people either loved him or hated him. I think Norman was very different, you know, that he he sort of went back to the poetics of why he wanted to be an art, you know, an artist as an architect, not an architect as businessman or technical scientist, you know. And if you look at the best work, like the Pearlbinder House and the, the Gates of the Grove and work like that, it's really sensual. When he disappeared... What was your sense? I mean, obviously, there would be a lot of disbelief amongst people who knew him. But what was the general public reaction? Yeah, I mean, I think it ran the gamut. I I, I think everybody was obviously shocked, as as you are, if you know someone and they suddenly disappear. Yeah. And the you know, in my experience, when I grew up on you know body surfing all my life on Long Island, and it's you know, it can be very uh, dangerous. It could be unlike certain beaches. You know, it has a very steep cutoff. And you really go from quite shallow to suddenly like very deep, you know, and that's why they have, you know, they're famous great white sharks, you know, buzzing up and down the beach, especially around Montauk Point. I was not out there. I was at Princeton at the time. And I remember someone handed me the New York Times and they said, don't you know this guy? And I went, oh, my God. But, you know, it was shock and surprise mixed with not that surprise. I think almost everyone who knew him well. You know, it was the same thing. They were horrified, but but not at all surprised. You know that 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 something either he drowns accidentally, you know, and we can get into all the, the variations of that. So many people said to me when I started calling people up. In fact, every single person I called up or talked to the week after he disappeared had a different story, had a different idea of what happened to him. If everyone that you talked to had a different idea about what happened, that means nobody was really satisfied until they found a bone and closed the case as a, as an accidental. Yeah, but, but, yeah, but that didn't even close the case. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, just the character of the guy, you know, he was very uh, mercurial in many ways. He was, he had these extremes, you know, one side being an ambitious New York architect and the other side being, you know, this meditating yogi sort of wannabe guru guy. And I think v very conflicted in some ways. So I think people projected their own fantasies in a way of this guy or their own memories or their own passions or, or dislike of this guy. And I think it took me a while to figure that out, but I think that's what was going on. So at the beginning, you had the logical thing, which is like, look, people every summer, a certain number of people drown in the ocean, on the ocean beach in, in eastern Long Island. That's just a given. But as all the old salts will tell you, the body always, some part of the body always washes ashore. And usually quite soon after the drowning, you know. So there was that. And then there was like, well, you know, there have been a lot of big sharks around recently. So then the theory was he got eaten by a great white and then, you know, that bit of his hip bone was left and somehow that washed up near Montauk. And, you know, I never quite totally bought that. And no one I know has ever seen that bone, you know. And I know people have tried to see that bone. I have never met anyone, including the detective who did the case, who claims that they saw and held and looked at, at the bone. Now, I don't know if it, it's because it disappeared into you know, Riverhead or Hopog, you know, Suffolk County forensic, whatever, you know, storage unit. I had no idea. It was just kind of fishy. Let's start at the beginning. He was depressed. He went swimming too far, too far out. It, we know it was a pretty calm day. You know, there weren't any massive undertow or big waves or anything. So, but then you have at least, I have to say, at least four or five people I talked to who all claimed to have taught Norman how to swim that he was a lousy swimmer, 
that he you know hadn't grown up knowing how to swim. So you know often that's quite difficult if you have to learn later in life. You know you're never a great swimmer. I don't know. So that was weird. Did he just go out and have a heart attack or a stroke, and then a shark eats him, or the bluefish eat him, or you know that there was a theory that the bluefish you know were really running strong that time of year and they just gobbled them up, which I don't believe. I don't believe bluefish eat human bodies. I just think what's fascinating to me as a writer, as a cultural historian, whatever, is that a guy like this should, I mean, if you or I suddenly disappeared tomorrow, would all our friends speculate so wildly? You know, I think it had a lot to do with the nature of his personality. Whoever you asked had a different a different idea of what happened. So people saw his car parked in the driveway and his clothes on the beach. And because right. it was part of his regular practice to go swimming every day, that was the assumption. But we don't actually have eyewitness testimony that, that anybody saw him actually get into the water. Not that I know of. So there are a number of different things that make drowning a real possibility, including he was a lousy swimmer. There mm-hmm. were sharks in the area. You yourself said it's kind of a dangerous place, although the water was calm that day. It can, it can be dangerous. It can, on a given day, it can be quite dangerous, yeah. But in your heart of hearts, do you feel like drowning or some sort of attack from a sea animal satisfactory? No. I, I would say that the amount of time I've spent thinking about it and like Andrew's sort of pondering and studying, you know, what there is to study. One half of me believes everything, you know, everything I hear or read. And the other half of me just doesn't believe anything, any of it. And, you know, maybe he just went out and had a heart attack or got exhausted. swam because he did something strange, which I forgot to mention earlier on. He would apparently just swim straight out. You know, like he wouldn't go along the shore. He'd just swim straight out like he was going to Portugal or something. A couple of times at these funny lunches we'd have, you'd say, um, it wasn't Le Corbusier's death very elegant. I went, What the hell are you talking about? Because as you probably know, you know, Le Corbusier, the great, you know, Swiss, French, whatever architect, he died swimming off of Cap Martin in the south of France. Now we pretty much know because of the latest biography, which came out a couple of years ago, they'd found this, these letters and it sounded like, you know, his wife had died, his mother had just died, he was depressed. And, you know, you could, you just go, I'm going to swim so far out into the current that I'm going to be too tired to come back. And that's sort of a passive form of suicide, right? Uh, To me, that's, that's plausible, but it still doesn't answer the question of, you know, why no body? You know, why, why did a body not? Especially if it was not too rough. And eventually the, the current does come in. It, it sounds like he glamorized Le Corbusier's end in a certain way, or he found it poetic. And do you think that there's some merit to that as a theory? Again, I don't, I don't know. It's just, it adds fuel to the flames of you know, speculation, which is kind of fascinating because I remember when he said that, I, I really do distinctly remember him saying that to me. And at the time I thought, what, that, what is he talking about? You know, what, why is that? He seemed to see it as his la- his final design option. You know, that this guy was who designed his way through life in so many ways had this elegant, you know, beautifully poetic way of, of checking out when he decided to check out. Did he uh, ever mention any other suicide adjacent type of comments? I mean, not a specific reference. Various people said to me over the years, yeah, you know, they, he definitely had a, a depressive side. And as I say, he had, he may have had a, 
you know, even a genetic history of that with his mother. And I think his brothers had, you know, had problems too. So, yeah, I think that's there as, as uh, again, you know, as this many different possibilities. And I think that's one of them. That's what happens when you leave without saying goodbye properly. You know, you just, you disappear and everybody makes up a, a story. This leads me to the, you know, theory that I heard the, the most was this idea that he, disappeared himself that this was a plan by norman and that he could still be alive oh absolutely i would say that was in my experience that was much more the response than he got murdered was you know he just checked out and he was sick of the whole thing and he faked his death and got the hell out of here and is either in you know he's very involved in this uh, program in africa that looked after orphan kids from nairobi and um a bunch of people said to me, oh, yeah, I think he just went there. And then others said, you know, he'd been at the with the guru in uh, in northern India, like he went to India because he'd raised money to build a hospital for him. You know, he just went off and he got sick of the whole thing. And he checked out. His marriage was sort of, you know, on the rocks and, and he got out of there. And I think 1993, you maybe could still consider doing that you know it now with facial recognition and everything digital and everything you know they know where you are every set and cell phones and everything you know you couldn't do you couldn't get as far as kennedy airport and do that why are so many people thinking that a guy would go to that extent i mean that's that's a pretty intense act to to take right is to choreograph your end but again you know we go back to what he said about le Corbusier. Well, what, what I loved was that they all really hoped that that is what happened. Sure. They, sure. There, was, there was, again, he, he, this was a guy who uh, touched people deeply. You know, if you bet him, you were touched by him, I think. So, but isn't that just projecting their, their desire for the resurrection of the, of the prophet kind of, you know, that yeah. if, someone dis, if someone disappears like that, you can... Of course, you can imagine it's a way of non-closure. It's a way of keeping the possibility of someone's life. I often, you know, in the middle of the night when I'm thinking about this stuff, or, you know, I, have, I often have a dream about him. I see Norman. He comes out of the ocean, and I'm really rattled. And I go, you know, Norman, where have you been? And, you know, you know why, don't you, why don't you get in touch with your family? And um, he hands me, he doesn't speak to me, he just hands me this book, this big book, like a Bible, you know, or something, a big black book. And it's, and I, and I take it like I need to read this book, you know, that Norman's handing me in the dream, but it's wrapped up really tightly with duct tape, you know, that, that thick gray tape that plumbers use, I guess, or whatever. And it's really impossible to get off. And of course I, I can't open it to read it. So that, at that point I usually wake up and I always wake up curious thinking, you know, what am I supposed to do next? You know, I've done a show and a book and a movie, you know, and, and, you know, what more do you want? Leave me alone. You know, what, you know, what, what are you trying to tell me and what's in the book? But just let me open the damn book. Whoa. Okay. So let's break that down a bit. That yeah. was a lot of great detail from yes. Alistair. I still don't feel like we have any real answers. The armchair detective in me wants to really try and figure this out. So, like, yep. he's a shitty swimmer, but the yeah. ocean wasn't rough. And he and he had been swimming there for years and years and years. He knew it. It wasn't a new place for him. Some people are willing to accept it. Like, oh, I guess that that's what happened. You know, that's right. the way the cookie crumbles. But right. there are a lot of people who are just like, no, that doesn't sound right. We would have found his body... 
or there would have been some other indication, like maybe if the if the water was particularly treacherous that right. day, or if there was shark sightings or something, then we'd have a little right. bit more to go on. They didn't find right. anybody, and they didn't Nobody. find that hip, hip bone for six weeks. And and just the hip bone, that's what's really curious as well. Not not one other piece of it. Why the hip bone? I mean, I don't know enough about how bodies decompose in the water or how they get eaten by sea life. <laughs> but, let's <You> don't? <laughs> but let's just imagine he drowned and was in some way sort of decomposed and dismembered by the various natural forces of the sea. And all that's left or all that washes up to shore is a hip bone. Why not conduct a DNA test just to make sure? Were they super expensive or... It was relatively new technology then, but I think by by 1989, I think it was pretty commonplace to conduct them. And I think especially for someone of his stature, and again, he's in the Hamptons, which is not a poor community, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. So you would think if a prominent figure of uh, their community goes missing and then supposedly turns up or a piece of him turns up, they would want some real closure there. Yeah, especially because, I mean, there was a lot of speculation and press around his disappearance, right? And a lot of people were still hoping to find him alive. Right, absolutely. I mean, yeah, this was not a small thing. The New York Magazine did did a massive article on it, like about 10 pages. The New York Post, when he disappeared. The New York Times. I mean, it it was everywhere. It was a big deal. So, yeah, it was very curious. And I think that really... That prompted a lot of speculation, a lot of this speculation of, of what could have gone on and these more sort of sorted possibilities were prompted by this fact that, that it just did not feel very close, that a DNA test could have at least narrowed it down to, okay, is him, Norman Jaffe, disappeared in the Atlantic Ocean when he was swimming? Sure, we don't know if it was intentional or it was accidental, but at least we know it's him. But then that door is left open. Why is that door left open? You have to ask yourself that. Right. Well, let's break down the idea of an intentional drowning. Like, we know that he had a troubled connection to his parents. If his dad's a drifter and his mom is bipolar and, you know, he even sought his own emancipation from them. His ex-wife died of a terrible car crash and he became a single father. His life is not without some turbulence. But he seemed to be on his spiritual path. He seemed to be finding what he was looking for. I guess well, there I, is always a, an enormous disappointment if you seek and seek and seek, and you think you find it, and it's wholly disappointing. That can be very devastating. But it didn't right. sound like he was having, I mean, he he was getting the critical acclaim. Well, was he happy in his marriage? We don't know that. Yeah. That's all. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's pretty well documented that there was some, turbulence there that it was not all's well that definitely plays into again uh, this theory of that could have caused him to consider suicide that could have played a role Were there rumors that she was going to leave him or did they have money trouble or the other thing that i think is pretty interesting about the suicide idea which plays into the disappeared idea i think it could be the same thing i could imagine norman saying you know, I've reached the pinnacle. I've sort of done it all here on Earth now. Now the next adventure. 
and the next adventure doesn't have me in a human body. It's mm-hmm. my soul. I need I need to free my soul, and I'm going to do that. Sort of spiritual evolution to a higher plane. Mm-hmm. In your research, did people talk about that as well? Is that something? Yeah. It seems like his wife might be privy to that if, if he R- talked about things like that. Yeah, yeah. She talks about that morning that he died, these uh, certain kind of birds that showed up in their yard that had never showed up there before. And I think they weren't even really from the area, um, if I'm getting the story correct. And she was convinced that it was sort of Norman, you know, stopping to say, I'm okay. I've completed the journey in my body, and now I'm in this other place, and I just want you to know that I'm okay. Maybe he felt like he had completed his soul contract, and it was Mm -hmm. time for him to move on. And right. since he is an architect, he architected his own moving on. Now, apparently Norman had a, a fairly sizable life insurance policy. His wife is not able to lay claim to that insurance policy unless there is a body. So there starts to be rumors that she was friendly in one way or another with the investigators on uh, on this case and uh, one investigator in particular and that he produced this hip bone and it could go either way it could be norman even working it out if norman norman was like listen working out with the investigator i'm going to do this but i need you to produce some form of my body so sarah and the kids are taken care of like i'm going to disappear but I need you to produce this hip bone and therefore the insurance policy can be claimed. Okay. Wait a minute. This is getting, okay. All right. All right. So there's an insurance policy that his wife cannot benefit from unless there is a body, whether he intended to transform himself to a higher spiritual plane on purpose, or whether he intended to create a, a ruse of a drowning so that he could disappear and go live a life somewhere else. He was thoughtful enough to set a plan in place to have a hip bone that looked like his be discovered so that his family would still be taken care of. So do we have any eyewitnesses that saw him park his car, get out, go down to the beach, take off his clothes? We don't. We We just have have the pile of clothes and the car in the driveway. Yes, exactly. Theoretically, that could have been driven by somebody else, some sort of perpetrator. Right, sure. Placed the clothes, and then there's no body at all because he's murdered and buried somewhere else. And there's only one hip bone that's been extracted from his body. Or it's just some other hip bone. Or some other hip bone. Yeah, that taken from a graveyard or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. and the only like sort of people that we could think of that would want him dead are sorted, well, sorted building business dealings. Yeah, business dealings. I mean, and but and again, as somebody somewhere, right? Well, you know, and, and what he was really known for was again these eccentricities that came out in all sorts of crazy ways. Even in most benign example, is that Norman really did want to either transcend this plane or move somewhere else, you Mm -hmm. know, and be free to start a new chapter. And he was beloved and friendly enough 
with the people around there that they sort of agreed to assist. Exactly. So that's kind of where we're left. And it feels like this, this mystery that sort of will never go away until that hip bone comes back and we're able to do some type of DNA test on it. And again, that won't close the case entirely, but I think that would narrow the mystery down. But without that, we're left, we're left swimming in these waters, so to speak. Norman, where are you? Send us a message, a sign. Thanks for joining us on this inaugural episode of Clever Confidential. Huge thanks to Alistair Gordon for sharing his expertise and personal experiences. If you liked this episode and want to hear more stories like this, including the bizarre tale of Frank Lloyd Wright and the axe murders that took place at Taliesin, let us know. You can find us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. And you can find me at Amy Devers. And you can find me, Andrew Wagner, at Wags is Sticks. Clip of Norman Joffe's voice appears courtesy of Alistair Gordon and Floating Films. Clever Confidential is produced by 2VDE Media with editing by Rich Straffolino. Our theme music is Astronomy by Thin White Rope from the album In a Spanish Cave, courtesy of Frontier Records. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.